This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Eurokti, a yen of Chacht Erechor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echo. Vien Tolem again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Today's Indo Daily is brought to you by our sister podcast, The Bell Tell. On the 21st of June, 1991, Margaret Perry, a 26-year-old civil servant from Portadown vanished. She didn't fit in. And on account of her being so naive and not worldly wise, I became worried that she could become involved in something through them and not even know it, not even suspect that she'd been drawn. For a year, her disappearance remained a mystery. Some in the town thought she'd run away to England. Others feared that she'd taken her own life. But her family and friends believed She'd been murdered. Burns rang and she told him on the phone that she would sink. You use bastards. Had you any idea what it was with which she could sink them? Not at all. No. Did she mention it? No. Then on the 2nd of July 1992, her body was found in a shallow grave in Moore, County Sligo. The key suspect was Gregory Burns. Burns, they claimed, had been an informer for 12 years. Three days later, the bodies of three IRA men were found in South Armagh. Dignam, a convicted terrorist, had been stripped, hooded and shot dead after being branded an informer by the IRA. His body, along with two other men murdered in the same way, had been found dumped at different locations in South Armagh on Wednesday night. The IRA accused them not only of Margaret's murder, but of being informers, even agents. The, the story goes that they had encouraged him then to join the IRA and work for them as an agent within the IRA. He was an agent from day one. From day he joined the IRA to be an agent. They had been shot by the IRA's notorious nutting squad, of which the agent known as Steakknife, Freddie Scapatici, was a leading member. We know that the people who were involved in that internal security unit is Freddie Scapatici, the highest ever ranking free agent that existed in the history of the Troubles. To tell us more about this case, I'm joined by our security correspondent, Alison Morris. 
Alison, the story we're about to tell, the more I've looked into it, the more complicated it becomes. But there's one thing that we can say with absolute certainty at the beginning of this story. And that is that a 26-year-old woman from Portadown, Margaret Perry, a woman innocent of any crime, was brutally murdered. She was strangled to death and her body was dumped. That's the starting point. Um, Margaret, as you say, she was a 26-year-old. She was a civil servant from a very respected family in Portadown. And at the time of her disappearance, she lived with her mother. She worked at the, the Training and Employment Centre in Lisburn. Um, she was a Catholic living in Portadown. She had found herself in a relationship with quite an unsavoury character called Gregory Burns. Margaret, when you look back and you read some of the news stories, you get the impression she was quite a naive young woman. When we think of 26-year-olds now, you probably think of them as quite worldly ways. She seemed to be quite naive and she became quite besotted with this character. Gregory Burns was an IRA man in the area and he was someone who was known more as a bit of a gangster, probably in a Republican. He was involved in a lot of robberies, things like that. And he was also in another relationship with someone else. So... Um, he didn't treat her very well, but her mother, I think, you know, really disapproved of this relationship, but found that she could do very little about it, that Margaret just became completely and utterly besotted with this character. And that was one of the things that led to her downfall in the end that contributed to her murder. In what you said, there was very horrific circumstances. She wasn't only murdered, she was disappeared and her body wasn't found for a year and during that time her family were fed all sorts of nonsense. She's went to England she's run away with someone else you know, other people were saying oh she's, she's you know, besotted because he had dumped her and she's taken her own life and you know, there was all sorts of rumours um, thrown around and her poor mother at this time was bereft, wondering you know, where her daughter is is she wandering the world somewhere, is she lost um, <coughs> and this all went on for, for over a year The information as to where she was, was provided by the IRA to a priest who went and found her body. Father Raymond Murray, he would have been someone who'd been quite high profile and a lot of people would know Father Raymond Murray. He would have been involved in quite a lot of mediation at that time. So it's no surprise that he was the person that they went to. So she'd been missing, as you said, for over a year. Her body was found in Mullamore, a place I know very well. I would have took my children there. But she was put in a, a shallow grave. She'd been covered over with dirt and then some sort of shrubbery placed over the top of her, her body. And she, she said she'd been strangled with a cord and then battered around the, the head. The IRA told the priest he went and found her body. I came here to Moor. I came into this particular area of the wood where it was indicated that there was a grave which contained the body of a human being. And then two days later, the story takes another twist when the bodies of three IRA men are discovered wrapped in black bin bags um, and discovered close to the border in South Armagh. Dignam, a convicted terrorist, had been stripped, hooded and shot dead after being branded an informer by the IRA. His body, along with two other men murdered in the same way, had been found dumped at different locations in South Armagh on Wednesday night. And they'd each been shot twice in the back of the head. They were Gregory Burns, Aidan Stars, and Johnny Digman, and they were all from the Porta Down area. Now, Gregory Burns, as we've mentioned, had been in a relationship with Margaret Perry. So you, you've said that Burns was an unsavoury character. He seems quite an unpleasant human being, not just in his treatment of several different women he was in relationships with, but also 
we know that he was using the cloak of being an IRA person, an IRA man, to intimidate, to frighten people. And he was also using it to line his own pockets. He was doing um, robberies. He was carrying out, you know, extortion, intimidation, and he was keeping the money um, from those. And he was also, as what was later discovered, working for free, the Force Research Unit. It has been suggested that what happened was that he actually went to join the UDR, which would have been a strange move for an IRA man or a Republican. I don't think there was a Republican bone in, in Gregory Burns' body. I think that the, all of this was for the financial gain. He tried to join the UDR and they said no because of his background and because of where he came from. But we're told a few days later he gets a knock on the door um, from these boys in plain clothes. He said, no, but we've got another job for you. And they are, the, the, the story goes that they had encouraged him then to join the IRA and work for them as an agent within the IRA. He was an agent from day one. From day he joined the IRA to be an agent. So he wasn't recruited as an IRA member who they had saw as someone who they could maybe compromise or convince to work for them. They went to him and said, you're not going to be able to join the UDR, but go and join the IRA and work for us and we'll pay you. Um, and he worked for them for day one. But it does seem of these three people... Gregory Burns, Aidan Stars, and and John Dignam, that really only Dignam could have been described in any way as a committed Republican. Um, John John um, Dignam was probably the only one that had any you know real Republican credentials. If you like, he had um, joined the NLA as a teenager. When he was eighteen, he was he was um, sent to prison. And when he was released from prison, he, he first joined Sinn Féin and I think stood unsuccessfully as a candidate in the local council elections and then obviously had become involved with the IRA then from then. Um, and they all seem to be under, I'm not going to say the spell of Gregory Burns, but they all seem to be in a compromised position, let's say, with him. Um, we know he was working for free. It is very unlikely. It has been suggested all three were. I would imagine that would be very unlikely. I would say that if they were working as informers, it's more likely they were working for IUC Special Branch and not for free. The only one who seems to be working for free is um, is Gregory Burns. There are some questions as to when Stars, who was on paper the IRA commander in Portadown, although uh, clearly if he murdered a young woman on Burns's request, and he did, I don't think there's any doubt about that. He, he does seem to be subservient to Burns, but there are... I mean, He's also compromised. If you think about it, if Adrian Stars was working for um, Special Branch and what we're told, so to try and get this into the, the, some sort of context, Margaret Perry finds herself in a relationship with this guy who is not particularly committed to her. She is completely besotted and finds herself very distressed about the fact that this relationship is on, it's off, it's on, it's off. It seems at some point, whether in a sort of drunken compromise position or whatever, through some kind of pillow talk, he has revealed a lot of details. First of all, about the fact that he was, you know, basically stealing money from the IRA by doing robberies and not passing it on. And also he appears to have given her information about the fact that he was an informer. This has came around when obviously he has done something on her. We don't know whether he's assaulted her, whether he's threatened her, what he's done. She has said, I'm going to go to the police and report you. He's then turned around and said, well, they'll not do anything because they're my mates. Basically, I, you will be the one who'll go down, not me. And he's told her something that has compromised this whole little gang of three. And that is what Gregory Burns appears to have used in order to convince stars to go and murder her. She is going to bring the whole house of cards down. She knows too much about us. She's a liability. We need to get rid of her. And that's what he's used. But if you want to like put it in real, I suppose, context about what kind of character 
Gregory Burns is and how little thought he would have maybe given to the fact that he intended to kill Margaret Perry or have Margaret Perry killed. There is a suggestion that he actually provided information to Frey, which led to the death of his own his own brother. Sean Burns um, was shot dead in November 1982. He was one of those shoot and kill cases. He was with Eugene Toman and Gervais McCarr. Um, and it was one of the cases that was investigated by John Stalker as a shoot to kill. Um, and according to um, a book that was written at one stage by a former free handler about steak knife, who we will go on to talk about later, they said that it was Gregory Burns who provided the intelligence which led to that incident. So if this man has provided information that's led to the shooting of his own brother, is he really going to think twice about getting rid of what was a troublesome girlfriend who he didn't want anything to do with anymore? So he has told Star she knows too much about us, but there's also a suggestion that he also told his um, free handlers, look, I've been compromised here, she knows this. And there was, a, there was some, it has been reported on some incidents that he said, I need out of here, I need into witness protection. At one point it was suggested he maybe suggested taking all three of them with him. He doesn't sound like a type of person who would have really cared very much about his two mates. And that was rejected. It was saying this is going to cost too much. Just deal with it. Deal with the problem. So did his freehanders know that he had planned to deal with this problem of Margaret Perry by killing her? Or what way did they say he was going to deal with her? It's been suggested that they just, it, the order came, take a hands-off approach and then deal with it. This is basically a domestic. Um, we're not to get involved in it. But if the plan was, well, the only way I'm going to shut her up is by killing her, well, then clearly they should have been involved in it as the, you know, the fact that they were meant to be the law. So they've decided they're going to murder this poor woman um, Star takes her takes her away. What basically he says is she gets three phone calls from Burns on a particular day. He tells her that he's broken his arm. He's in a hospital across the border, um, and he needs her to come and visit him. She's clearly besotted by this fella. Tells work she's taking some time off. She's not going to be back for a couple of days, and off she goes. Star tells her he's bringing her to this man, who she's clearly very, very much you know besotted by under the course of control of whatever we would call it in, in modern times. He takes her, he had no intention of taking her to meet Burns. Instead, he takes her to a very remote spot in Mullachmore and he strangles her with a cord and then he beat her to death with a spade. He later claimed that he was told to beat her to destroy dental records so that her body couldn't be discovered. He buries her in a very shallow grave and then in a panic, this is where then... Um, he involves Dignam as he comes back and says to him, I need your help in properly getting rid of this woman's body. But, and this is where it takes an even more bizarre twist, obviously this is a, you know, whatever we're going to say about him. This is nothing to do with the IRA. absolutely nothing to do with the IRA. But what he says to him is obviously to try and convince him to join him. And he's a married mom or two children. I can't imagine he's, you know, going to join in in the, the murder of a 26-year-old woman. But he tells him that she's colluding with loyalists. And who's the loyalist if you lived in Portadown and you wanted to really frighten someone that you would tell them that they were colluding and passing on information? He tells them that she's been seen in the company of Billy Wright and she's having an affair with Billy Wright and that's why she's dead. So he goes along with him. They basically just... He's, he says in his confession he didn't tip confession he didn't believe that she had killed her but then he's seen a piece of denim sticking out from the soil they put more soil over the top of her um, John um, Dignam then places some shrubbery over the top of that 
and that body then stays like that for a year and it stays concealed until then these men are taken away and interrogated by the IRA. So whenever we talk, just to stress, whenever we talk about these confessions, these taped confessions, I mean, these men were being held uh, by the IRA when these taped confessions were carried out. I mean, they're undoubtedly under extreme stress. Yes, these are not, con- you know, not confessions made in the presence of a solicitor. No. These are people who are taken away to be questioned about their behaviour. Um, and Stars claimed in his so-called confession that he felt he had to kill Perry because she had discovered that this gang of three had used IRA weapons to hold up a snooker club uh, and obviously without handing, you know, using the weapons to carry out a robbery and not handing over the proceeds of a robbery. Both of these, according to the IRA's morality and internal rules, are capital offences. Yes, they were basically just doing robberies and stealing the money for themselves. So that was what the investigation, IRA investigation, was at first about and then progressed with then obviously the confessions. And so we know that those IRA investigations were carried out by the so-called Internal Security Unit. And we know that the people who were involved in that Internal Security Unit, probably the, the most recognisable name, is Freddie Scapatichi, the highest ever ranking free agent that existed in the history of the Troubles the person who the British government said, you know, was the sort of crown jewel of, of RA informers. And so he carries out these interrogations along with another man, John Joe McGee. And all of Scapatishes, all of the internal security unit um, interrogations took the same sort of format. People were held. They were sometimes tortured. They were sometimes mentally tortured. They were held in a real place. They were tied to chairs. Sometimes they were stripped naked. They weren't allowed to sleep. They were deprived of food. They were given, you know, that that sort of noise torture to keep them awake for days and days on end. And they were told if they just told what they were up to, just confess everything, um, you can go home. And that was when a lot of people then bore their soul. It's said that that um, Dignam broke first and that he then told what he knew. And what he knew was that he had went along, he had met Star, he had been told that this woman was hanging around with Billy Wright and he had, you know, told them where her grave was. The IRA then passed this information on to the priest. The priest takes the guards to the spot her body is discovered and two days later, all three of these men are found by the side of the road in South Armagh. But I just wonder what prompted the IRA... I mean, because they'd already been suspended from the IRA, we understand. I mean, we can't confirm that. This is this is internal IRA, for want yeah. of a better word, business. I would say that... that they were first of all taken away because of the suspicion on them that they may have been informers, but because of the fact that they were doing robberies using IRA weapons. That is a no-no. To lift an IRA arm, stump and use it for personal gain at that stage would have been an offensive. Probably would have got them killed anyway without any of this other stuff being attached to it. But when they've been interrogated, they've clearly confessed to this. Now, I think that the two days between the discovery of Margaret Perry's body and their bodies discovered is quite significant because... The only way that the IRA would have known that everything that they were telling them was true was to tell it to Father Murray and Father Murray went to the exact spot. It was actually in the grounds of Lord Mountbatten's um, Castle Bonn estate in a rural part of that where, where she was found. Obviously Mountbatten did her killed by the IRA as well um, and that's where they found her. This would have been obviously quite a well, large... Well, would have been killed previously. Yeah, Mountbatten, but it was Mountbatten's estate where they'd, they'd buried her. So this was obviously a big news story at the time Margaret Parry had been found. They know then that these men are telling the truth, that they had murdered this woman. And all of this then starts to unravel. Two days later then, 
they are found. They um, and their the reason obviously was that she was going to expose them. This is why. But Dignam had a different reason. He thought because he was said he was told that she was cavorting with Billy Wright and passing information on Catholics to the loyalists to be murdered. None of which was true. No. I think we just make that point very clear. It's a very sort of innocent, naive young woman and none of this was true. Sourceton put it down, maintained that it's only Dignam was any sort of Republican in his own mind at all. Nevertheless, I mean, it does seem under his forced confession that he did play a, a role in the murder of a young woman, that is, to hide the body. Because I know it's, to, his, to his, his parents, his family, it's no surprise that they continue to try and defend him. Yeah, you can say it's quite a minor role, but it's not a minor role. He knew where her body was and her mother was distraught. You know, he could have told someone and, and allowed her body to be recovered and allowed her family to be put out of their misery. I mean, can you imagine her poor mother sitting watching the door every day thinking this girl's going to walk through it at any time? Um, so he could have done that. He didn't do any of those things. So no, he's, you know, he, he's, he's involved clearly in this atrocious crime. He's not the person who killed her or the person who set her up, but he did know where she was and he didn't reveal that. Um, it's interesting, his mother, I mean, his mother went to her grave refusing to believe that he had anything to do with the killing of Margaret yeah. Perry. She did seem, she, 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 she believed her son may have been killed to protect another well-placed informer. And this is, we hear this version of this story so many times. And she said, if he was informing, it's one thing, but since he was thrown out of the IRA two years before that, it's beyond me what he would have known worth dying for. I, that's why I do think that when we're talking about Adrian Starr and John, John Dignam, they're more likely have been working as RUC informers and therefore quite low level informant that would have came from there. The higher level stuff would have been passed on to free. We're told that Freddie Scavatishi started off working for Special Branch, but when they realised what they had on their hands, he was quickly passed on to military intelligence because he was too high an asset to be handled by them. Um, and we also know that that, that Nutton squad itself had, you know, John Joe McGee, there's been questions raised about him. He's no longer alive either. Scaptishy, as we know, died last year. All of this should form part of the Canova report. We don't know because we haven't really heard what's going to be in the Canova report. So the Canova report has been carried out by John John Boucher, the man who is our current chief constable of the PSNI, but was previously in charge of Canova. And Canova had to look at the um, activities of Freddie Scabatishi and obviously these killings fall in among that and so we could finally I think get the missing pieces of this jigsaw when Canova is released um, it's such a difficult story because so many people involved are now dead so how do you piece something like that together but what Boucher had access to nobody's ever seen before that's those intelligence reports from the time you know and the thing that he's meant to look at is could this have been prevented if the free agents knew what Gregory Burns was up to. Could they have prevented Margaret Perry's murder for a start? And then could they have obviously prevented these three murders which happened afterwards? Could they have saved their assets? Or at that time was their assets so compromised they were no longer any of use and of any use to them? Who's the bigger asset at that stage? Freddie Scabatishi is probably the more valuable asset at this point in time. And did Gregory Burns, I mean Gregory Burns told his handlers that he was in a compromised position. He was that he was compromised by Margaret Perry. Would it not have made sense then for 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 the representative of the state to realise that Margaret Perry was in mortal danger and that something should have been done about that? Uh, he uh, was. T- he said he was going to deal with it, which in itself, you know, should have known. And also, there's something else. The IRA and and Sinn Féin at a later date have said 
that Freddie Scabatishi was compromised in 1990 around that, the sort of Sandy Lynch incident, which I think we've covered in previous podcasts. If he was compromised in 1990 and then they were stood aside where that investigation was, was took place, had he anything to do with any of this at all? Maybe none of this is going to make its way into Canova because Boucher's going to establish that he was no longer actively involved in the Nutton Squad at that time. I have heard conflicting reports about that. Some people say he was, some people say he wasn't. Um, was he still there at that time or was this all John Joe McGee um, in charge of this interrogation at that time or was there another person in charge of this inter- interrogation at the time? It's just, it's a story that has so many twists and turns. It's a fascinating story. It's one of those ones that's almost got lost among everything else that's happened at that time and everything that was going on at that time. There are perhaps other reports and other pieces of work around this case and that some people may be prepared to go beyond speculation and to report things as fact. But that, that, that what we're trying to say is you really can't do that. Now, when everyone's, you, you know, perhaps people feel safe to do that because everyone is dead. However, it does seem that Gregory Burns was a through agent. Yeah. Uh, uh, Scapatici was a through agent. Yeah. And that draws the question if Scapatici was involved and even if he carried out this execution, did one through, did one British Army agent execute another British Army agent who was lower than him in the pecking order? That is, again, one of the things. I mean, we're all, you know, anticipated, waiting with anticipation on the release of the Canova report. We're told it's concluded, it's finished, it's with the PSNI, it is now up to them. Obviously, John Boucher has recused himself from that. A guy called Ian Livingstone, who used to be in charge of Police Scotland, is now dealing with Canova on his behalf, as he cannot deal with it because it would be compromised now. He's the chief constable of PSNI. But there's that question and many others. I mean, initially, was Gregory Burns working for free? And if so, when did he begin working for them? So that timeline is very important. Um, did they know, and did his handlers know about the plan to murder, murder Margaret Perry? And if so, what did they do to prevent it or stop it or did they do anything? If nothing was done, what was done after the fact? If they couldn't save her, what was done to make sure that... I'm pretty sure they must have known afterwards when we're told Gregory Burns told his handlers that's been dealt with and then they say that this woman is missing. Surely they should have went, dealt with how? You know, where is she? Um, and what was done then to recover her body? It seems nothing because her body was only recovered whenever these three... RA men are former RA men are scooped up to find out what it is the three of them have been up to. When do you think we're going to get to reading that? It is the million dollar question. I must be asked four times a week when I'm going to read Canova. It's finished. It's done. It's it's so at this point in time, he um, John Boucher has passed on to one of the assistant chief constables. It's Chris Todd, who is in charge of saying when this um, report will be released and how it'll be released. The PSNR are in charge of basically printing it up and setting it out. It's already been security cleared, it's been through the Home Office, it's been through any clearance to make sure that nobody's going to be compromised by it. Um, we're obviously in a different situation than we were when it first started and that Freddie Scaptish is now dead, so he's going to never be prosecuted um, in relation to any things in it. We know that the PPS have already said that they're not going to prosecute a number of other people who were referred to them in relation to it. And also then we have the, the legacy um, the legacy legislation, which is currently being challenged in the High Court, which is going to end all those prosecutions anyway. But what we can see in Canova is maybe a potential template for the future. Because if Canova manages to deliver truth 
And with truth comes a degree of justice. If it manages to deliver truth and in some way healing to some of those families, then could we look at that and say, well, instead of doing something that nobody wants, which is the Legacy Act, could we maybe take some learning from Canova and see if maybe that could be our future template and our way out of this? You seem to have a lot of faith in Canova. I do. And and maybe it's misplaced. I don't know. We'll see when it's when it's published. But I and, and any of the, the victims that I have spoken to have had a lot of faith in John Boucher as a human being, as an investigator and as someone who came here and said, trust me, you know, trust me in what I do. And so people have put their trust into him. And we'll see. We'll see when it's it's published. It's clearly not going to be what it started out to be, which is you thought, well, is this going to bring his the, the handlers to justice? This is, is going to bring, you know, the circus masters to justice. Are all these people who directed this um, going to eventually face justice and face court? I don't think that was ever realistic, you know. Um, none of these people, Freddie Scapatici knew too much to be prosecuted. You could never put him in the dock because he could take everybody down with him. A lot of these players and these big players who were in charge of organisations like Free have also since died. So, you know, with the passage of time, you lose the chance of justice. Um, I think that we're more or less past the point of judicial justice in terms of these um, because, first of all, that went with a Good Friday Agreement. Even a sentence with murder, you're only ever serving two years anyway. I don't think that's particularly justice. Um, so we're past that point. So what do we have then and what can we expect? And I do think that people should be should get truth, they should get an apology, at the very least, and they should get redress. Um, the Legacy Act doesn't provide for that, but that's one of the things, that's the, the path probably that we're left with now. Um, but at the same time too, there's there's power in storytelling, there's power in keeping people's memory alive by telling their stories. And I think, you know, as a journalist, that would attracted me. I don't know what attracted you to journalism at the far, at start, but to me, what attracted me was the chance to be able to go and see people and speak to people who no one had ever spoken to before and tell their stories. And we now have the new medium of podcast. Much to do that, which we, we're doing uh, now. And we do. And, and I suppose we have in this podcast, because it's been back in the news and it's been back in conversation. And we have been, as I say, been perhaps less definite, but it is complicated. We don't know all the answers, but we've told you, we've told the listener what we can tell them with confidence and what we're not completely confident about, we've said, look, we can't be completely confident yeah. about that. But even for history, it would be extraordinary if we could start to piece together what would happen. Because the more, personally speaking, the more I deep dive into this stuff, the more confused I become. It's just, isn't it? There's so many twists and turns and so many points where you think that could have been avoidable that could have been avoidable that could have been you know there's plenty of points where you think these people could have been saved that could have been stopped that could have been prevented and you know and I, I said again it's women and children are always the first casualties of any conflict Alison Moore security correspondent of the Belfast Telegraph thank you very much this episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, and the assistant producer was Olivia Peden. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Getty and the BBC. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. 